This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. Thanks to Rode Microphones and Harlan Hogan's VoiceOverEssentials.com, the home of the Portabooth Pro. This is the Pro Audio Suite podcast with Robert Marshall from Source Elements and Someone Audio Post Chicago. Darren Robbo Robertson from Voodoo Radio Imaging Sydney. From LA, George the Tech Whitam, the Tech to the VO Stars, and me, Andrew Peters, voiceover talent and home studio guy. Welcome to another Pro Audio Suite. This week we're paying a bit of a tribute to uh, a pioneer and a person who's a legend in the recording industry, Rupert Neve. Now we thought we'd try and find a couple of guests to come in and talk about their experiences with Neve products. Uh, And we've done just that, but I'm sure, as we normally do, we'll be all over the joint. Um, We have, from Australia, just out of Sydney, uh, Graham Buds Bitstrup, who uh, used to be, uh, for anyone in Australia, would know from the Angels and the band Ganga Jang and various other production and uh, engineering credits. And a guy he actually worked with back in 1983, um, who mixed an album that he had produced and engineered at Sound City, the famous Sound City, is Bill Drescher. How are you, Bill? I'm doing great. How are you guys today? Very Good. well. Damn fine. I have to say, after after watching the Sound City documentary a million times, <laughs> I feel like I feel like uh, Wayne and Garth when they meet Alice Cooper in um, in Wayne's World. It's like we're not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> the weird thing was that when I went and worked there with Bill, the Sound City was just another studio. Yeah, until right. I actually f- realised exactly what it was, yeah, you know, and when I found out more about it, you know, I was a bit like, oh shit, you know, I'm glad I got to, I'm glad I got to walk in there and do something there, you know. Now, was it? Uh, there's, it's notoriously skanky. Uh, was it skanky when you were there, Buzz? Skanky. I think, um, yeah, you know, if you're talking about musty, musty and kind of a bit, a bit kind of used. <laughs> yes, it was. But that's the good part about it. <laughs> Did it smell like a, a teenage boy's bedroom? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. True. Let me guess. Just by being there, you played a little more funky. Is what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> when did you start uh, working at Sound City, Bill? Uh, summer of '69, actually. Wow. Oh, wow. That was really early. Sounds like a song. That's impossible. I'm hearing your voice and going, "That does not compute." No. Your voice well, is was... the voice of a 25 year old. <laughs> hardly. Uh, I, Joe Godfrey, who bought uh, the studio, he bought it from Vox, actually. Vox owned it. And he managed a band I was in at the time. And uh, so I was there from day one, and uh, which was June of 69, I believe. Lots of people have seen the documentary of Sound City that Dave Grohl put together, and it goes through the history of how, you know, he was struggling to get acts to go there because it wasn't in the most um, pristine part of L.A., Um, but it kind of really kicked when Fleetwood Mac recorded Rumours, I'm guessing. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, that sort of um, put it on the map, but, uh, but Sound City really became popular before that when we put in uh, the Neve console in Studio A, and Studer tape machines, and then we built the control room for Studio B and put another Neve console into there. And those combinations of Neve, Studer really took off. And, 
you know, it became a hot place to record at. What Neve was that just for remembrance or? Oh God, I don't even remember. I don't remember the model number, but it, it was loaded with 1073 modules. Gotcha. Do you remember who made the call as to what board was going to go in that place? Um, I think Keith Olson was, was a big um, influence um, and got Joe Godfrey on board to uh, actually make the call to Neve and get those installed. Must have been a big decision, right? I mean, the cost of one of those consoles in those times, the installation that it took to put one in, you don't yeah. make that lightly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was one at a time. I think the first one went in, and then the second one was about two years later, something like that. And they, and they stayed in place for how, for how long? Um, God, almost to the end. I mean, Dave Grohl, everybody knows, bought the one out of A, and I think Rick Rubin bought the one out of Studio B. And those were about... Uh, maybe five years ago, ten at the most. Oh. Yeah. While we're on the on the on the genesis of Sound City, the question I've always had from watching the Dave Grohl thing a few times now is: Did you realize at the time what was going on, or was it not till you looked back and went, "Holy crap, we had something special"? Or at the time, were you all going, "You know, we've really got something here"? Um, no, actually, it was it was more like you know you work so much every day. <laughs> And you're working 12, 15 hours every day, sometimes seven days a week. And you're just cranking as hard as you can. And um, a lot of times you, you know, you think that the project you're working on sounds really, really good and is, you know, going to be a big hit record. Sometimes it isn't, sometimes it isn't. And, you know, through no fault of your own, the record company can lose interest or whatever. But um it it was just sort of a thing that it was just a really good signal chain, good recording rooms and good recorders, really. At that time, how much thought went into the acoustic design of the live room? I mean, I've seen classic live rooms documented that, you know, sometimes look like not much more than just a wall covered in pegboard. I mean, there's more to it than that, obviously. <laughs> but the control room in Studio A actually was essentially all built out um, when we got there. Mm -hmm. Um Somebody made the decision to put that paisley carpeting or whatever was on the walls, <laughs> and uh, that's that's about all the treatment that was done to that room. Studio B was we built from scratch, and that was really um, Jack Crimes's uh, sort of you know project, and he's the one along with uh, George Augsburger who uh, really sort of designed and uh, came up with you know what should what it should look like and sound like. They must have just had their or their own, their, each room clearly had their own personality, right? I mean, you either liked one or you liked the other, I would imagine, huh? Actually, they were both great. You know, they were, they were both really good. Yeah, I guess it's not even fair to say liking. I guess maybe someone might have a preference. They're, they're just so used to the way one room sounds. Or did they work hard to make B try to match A? Do you remember? Like, was that a big thing? Were they trying to get the control rooms to sound similar? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think it was more of a question of, you know, A was such a, a big recording room that, you know, you could get much bigger open drum sounds and all that, and you could put a an orchestra in there. And B was more of just a sort of a tight uh, rock and roll band type of room. Right, right. Yeah, I was thinking more of the control room more than anything in that case. But but yeah, I, I can see, you know, obviously different size rooms have different purposes and they're tuned differently, yeah. 
Buzz, mm-hmm. how does it compare to other studios you've worked in? Well, listening to to that, uh, and uh, my, my my thing was uh, working at Albert's studio from 1976. Albert's where ACDC were recording and stuff, and and as I said before we went on air, that was a, a rectangular room. It had a couple of curtains on the wall and it had a wooden floor and that was it. And, <laughs> yeah. it. and it wasn't very big. It wasn't very big and they'd have Angus and Malcolm and, and Phil and Mark Evans all in the same room. In fact, we recorded the Angels the same way um, and uh, they'd just all be in there together. They'd cut the track uh, after playing it. They used to you know, play for maybe 10 minutes on a groove, 10, 15 minutes, and when George said, I think you got it there, they'd press red and they'd do the track and then Bond would do his vocals later. But, you know, it was just a, a square room and a, it's interesting talking about, um, you know, the, the you know the sound design and everything because I also worked in other studios in Sydney. One was called Paradise, which was a Tom Hidley room. Uh, Tom Hidley came out and, de- and designed that one. Um, and then the Rhinoceros Recordings, which was, uh, you know, famous studio here as well. A lot of people in excess used that, and and we used it for Gangajang and stuff. What it, what it is is, if you get a good sound, you don't muck around with it. So you only have to work on the sound if it doesn't sound any good. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean. It's interesting you know? that uh, desk you're talking about at Alberts. That's uh, now living in Melbourne in the studio down here, as I mentioned before we got on air, uh, at a studio called Hot House. Yes. An 8024, 1974 Neve console. That's how I learned how to engineer on that one. Oh, did you really? Yes, absolutely. Yep, I used to sit there with George Young and Harry Vander and, and the engineer they had at the time. Well, one of them was the, the first young engineer was Mark Opitz. Wow. Who, who turned into a fairly mm, successful yeah. producer. So I used to just sit there with Mark and go, what does that button do? What does that do? Why are you doing that? Why is it pre? What's that do? Until they just got really sick of me. So as soon as I'd done my drums, they'd just set me up in the studio next door and go, there you go, go and learn for yourself, which is what I did. They had another little Neve downstairs as well. Wow. Yeah. That story is so similar to mm. mine, except my, my experience was in radio, but it was also on a Neve console. So there you go. I, yeah, there you crazy. go. Yeah. I got to touch one back when I was I had a brief stint uh, as, a, as an intern at Sigma Sound in Philadelphia in uh, 1997. Seven, seven, 1978? Or no, no, I'm sorry. 1998. Got my decades off. Um, and, uh, it was kind of nearing the end of the dynasty of Sigma sound. I know with Joe Tarja and Mike Tarja, but we, they had an 8078 in there. And I, and I remember having to recall that board. He, they'd throw a three ring binder down and say, all right, recall this thing. And I'd be like, what? Wow. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. Just make every knob match every picture. I was like, holy crap. Polaroids. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Polaroids. Yeah. Not even a TV set to look at. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's the same board I, I think, as uh, as Sound City. It's the eighty seventy eight because because yeah. Sound City had an eighty seventy eight and the other one was an eighty. Where'd my eyes go? Twenty eighty twenty eight twenty eight channel yeah. and then an eighty seventy eight forty channel. I think you know, my e- most EMI favorite in Sydney had eighty eighty seventy eights. My most favorite tracking room is Studio A at A uh, and M, which is now Henson, but um, they had an old Neve in there that just got too old, and then they put an SSL in there, but as far as a really great big tracking room, I've never come across anything better. Wow. And 
Every, everybody's required. Mm -hmm. We are the world was done there. The stones were done there. You two rattle and hum. I mean, the, the credits in, in that room, you know, over the years, mm -hmm. just amazing. Wow. Oh my in gosh. fact, I was, I was there Monday and Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, I know you've worked at, you worked at A&M, we've done Sound City, but you've also worked at the Hit Factory and uh, a stint in the UK with, um, at Air Studios. And I'm guessing they yeah. all had needs. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, they did. And um, I worked a lot at the Village for years in their Studio D that had uh, a Neve. And I don't recall the the number of it, but it was built for Fleetwood Mac Rumors. That whole room was, uh, um, that was a great sounding room too. Wait, so not, they built a just, room for an album specifically? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yep. They built wow. it for uh, Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Yeah. Huh. It was worth yeah. it. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure they've made their money <laughs> yes. back. It's like biggest albums ever. <laughs> Great sound and control room. The 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 live room wasn't nearly as big as uh, like Studio A at A and M or Studio A at Sound City even. But uh, sometimes we put the drums upstairs um, in this big huge hall that they had and record the drums from up there. It was it was an old uh, Masonic hall and um, owned by Jordy Hormel. Of the Hormel Spam Meat Company, <laughs> but um, it was it was a great console, great console. What was the one like at Air? Um, it was good. It was in great condition and really uh, great sounding, and I had a blast there. It was really cool, and um, especially when George Martin would walk in, it was just you know the ultimate hero. You know, <laughs> just looking at the guys going, "Oh my God!" You know. His, I think his main thing, he'd pop in in the mornings just before we'd start, maybe like once a week or something. And he was always trying to get me to go down to Montserrat to record down there, right? Trying to sell me a sales pitch on it, you know? And I said, man, I just can't afford it. It's too much money. I can't drag a band down there, da, 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 da. He said, well, you, you can afford it. You just got to work 24 hours. And I go, how can I work 24 hours? And he said, well, you, you let the band work by themselves for 12, and then you come in for 12. And I went, I just don't think that's going to work. You know? <laughs> yeah, they'll all be at, overslept and playing great. <laughs> Is that is that why you're saying that drugs were such a big thing at one time in, in the music business? Is that why? Have you ever just overworked? That's the only reason. Probably. That's up. why you had to clean out the modules all, way too often, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Most people use them for recreation, but some people use them for working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Literally. Actually, I'm sure. Literally. I, I was one of the latter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I did a lot of drugs, but I made a lot of records. Yeah, you were productive. Exactly. There's two kinds yeah. of druggers, drug, drug users. Some are, <laughs> some are the productive type. <laughs> I've seen consoles coming out and uh, having the modules taken out, and you see what's in the bottom in the tray underneath the modules. It's quite extraordinary. Lunch and drugs. <laughs> we used to do that regularly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You couldn't afford to buy, so oh, just take a couple of modules out. We'll scoop what's in there. <laughs> People would always offer to clean clean the console. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. 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 I can sell what's down there. No, I'll clean, I'll clean it. I'll clean it. Yeah, a couple of joints and a gram of coke. Yeah. Not that for free. Exactly. <laughs> Especially when certain bands would come in there and spend like a month, you knew there was just a ton of crap in there, you know. 
Yeah, right. right. <laughs> well, I followed I followed Alex Sadkin into Studio B at EMI after Duran Duran. So go figure. <laughs> okay. Wow. Say no more. It kept, wow. it kept me in coke for about a month. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Uh, love it. Oh, uh, yes. I love it when they say, microphone, never been in a, a smoke-filled studio. Mm. You go, really? Yeah, right. Then it hasn't been used. I was going to say, then it's never yeah, been right, out exactly. of the box, never has been it? Used. That's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now, the other thing, Buzz, is um, this is another coincidence because uh, you actually used to own a Neve console, uh, which from memory I did. Uh, came out of Abbey Road. Is that right? Well, no. It, 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 at the end of, at the end of the um, 60s and going into the 70s, um, EMI used to have studios around the world. They had studios in Sydney, they had them in South Africa, and they had them. They had one in America, in LA, and they they got Rupert Neve and their engineers to get together and put all the best compressor, the best faders, the best EQ circuits, everything into one board, and they said make fifteen of them and send them around to our studios. So that was a TG one two three four five Mark three. And I ended up buying one because it was sitting out the back of a of a, um, a voiceover place. It was a voiceover kind of you know post production facility in Sydney, and my friend was running this. An engineer friend was running this place, and he said, oh, "I got this old desk sitting out the back. You know, we don't know what to do with it." And I went out and I looked at it, and it was exactly, obviously, like the looked like the transfer desks that we used to cut off of so we had cutting lay, cutting desks and stuff and they were the they looked the same and i said is that the same kind of circuitry as that's in the cutting desk you know the cutting rooms and the and transfer rooms in EMI he said yeah yeah and i went oh shit you know how much do you want for it and he said, oh, I don't know, you know what do you reckon and i went oh shit i don't know <laughs> i don't know 5 grand and the guy said yeah okay <laughs> Wow! Oh, I went, oh, okay. That was too so, easy. So I bought, wow. I bought it for five grand, and I and at the end of it, I thought, shit, I should have said two, and I probably would have got it for two grand. Yeah. But yeah. but wow. I paid five grand for it, and I got ten years, nearly ten, actually fifteen years of beautiful use out of it. I used to use it on everything. And uh, I, I had a, I had a little breakout kit so I could take some of the modules and put them into a little breakout, you know, of 12, 12 modules and I'd take them everywhere with me. And at the end of the 90s, by the, by the time of the financial crisis and everything, you know, interest rates were going nuts. It was all kind of weird. I was living in the country and I was a bit broke um, at, at the time and I wanted to move back to Sydney and I needed some extra money to get back to Sydney to live. And um, I just sort of said to this friend of mine who was a broker, look, I've got this, you know, because everyone knew I had the desk. I said, you know, what do you reckon it's worth? And he said, oh, it's probably worth a hundred grand. I went, oh shit, okay. Um, and made the decision then to put the hundred grand or what I could get for it into my new house in Sydney, where I am right now, sitting in my studio. So, it, you know, I built my studio and stuff downstairs in my new house and um you know when i listed it with the broker i thought it might take a little while to find a bit a buyer and within a week he came back and said we got a buyer for you and i went oh okay and he said they want to pay 80 grand and i went oh you know i really want 100 i got 100 in my head you know 100 well they'll pay 80 grand today right now 
And I went, oh, you know, uh, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And I did. I sold it. And then I found out it was Noel Gallagher that bought it. Oh, really? I thought, fuck, he could have paid a He could have paid 100 grand. Easy. That's right. He could have paid 100. He could have paid 200 grand for it. Yeah. But anyway, that's my that's <laughs> yeah. my story of the TG. But I did keep the schematics, and I've had people build me little bits and pieces out of it. So the light diode compressors work really well. The the EQ circuits, you know, they've been made into things called Peach Audio, which um, has been kind of cool. But it was out the back, and it was covered in sawdust and covered in muck. Wow, it was just really? Like it was Whoa. just yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I wish I'd never had to sell it, uh, you know, but there you go. I, I had to. I got to tell you, man, listening to you talk about this, I'm literally reading about this on, I'm reading about these desks on Wikipedia and it's like, I'm reading yeah. about it and listening to you talk about the exact same thing as I'm reading. I mean, it's surreal. It's so amazing. <laughs> I mean, I'm fanboying here. But I'm looking at it? a photo of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so a question for both of you. Um, when you know that you're going to be working on a Neve console or you are working on a Neve console, do you approach the way you're working any differently? For me personally, no. Um, it's, it's all about just getting the best sound I can get at that time with the players, the microphones, the studio, whatever it's, it's, um, I don't really have any, you know, difference of working on a, on a Neve or an SSL or whatever. I just try and go for the best I can get. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much the same with Bill. It's really about the sound that you can get and you have to use the tools that you've got. I mean, obviously Neve boards sound great, you know, but you know, other boards sound good too. Yeah. I guess what I'm asking is and I probably didn't ask very well is are you more picky with what you're hearing or or do you, do you still just rely on the same old or not the same old, but the same sort of things you're listening for normally. You have to rely on the room then. You yeah. have to rely on the, you know, the room that you're in and the speakers that you've got and, yeah. you know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure Bill does it too. If you go into somewhere where you're about to go and work, you just put something on the speakers that you know backwards and have a listen to it and go, oh, yeah, you know, that's yeah. what it. Yeah, that's what it should sound like and that's what it sounds like here. Do you find that the, the Neve itself has its own sort of flavour of EQ where it doesn't need too much? No matter if I'm working on an Eve or an SSL, whatever, when it comes to mixing, uh, I do a lot of automation and a lot of automated EQs for different notes, different parts. Um, it, it doesn't matter if it's an Eve or an SSL. A lot of it comes down to the performance. Like if a singer is like too muddy sounding and I have to automate the EQ to make him brighter on certain words or or if he's like too thin on certain words, then I have to automate it to make him sound more thicker and heavier. Um, you know, so it's it's still just a, a lot of automation that goes. Wow, into these you must mixes. have been like automating like to con- you know if they were if their mic technique was sloppy or they were moving how, around the mic. How did you, you do that been... before a DAW? How how were you automating well, EQs uh, before DAWs and things like that? Little little uh, chalk marks on the faders. Yeah. <laughs> Started off with little china graph marks on faders, moving them up and down, and china graph marks on, on you know, bass or, you know, on frequencies so that sure. you could, you know, at a certain point add it, subtract it. Or, or I imagine you could have two tracks, like you could bust it to another track and have one brighter and the other one darker, and then you could just fader one up or the other one up to get your blend. What I, what I do is I take multiple sends off of the vocal fader and then I'd run those into other multiple faders with 
a bunch of EQ cranked one way or the other, depending upon what I needed. And then I'd automate that fader up on certain words and, and back it off. And so you might have like, you know, five faders for a vocal, four of them being different EQs and stuff. And but, wow. Um, wow. That's awesome. But, but it, it works good. Yeah. 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 Buzz, what now it's you? a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, sim- similar, similar kind of thing. I mean, you know, when before the, the, um, the one, the 10, the 8078 that used to be at EMI in Sydney, that had flying faders. That was the first one that I worked on that had flying faders. Um, that was, you know, it was NECAM, it was called. Um, and it was a. I hated it that. It was a really. <laughs> Did you? I hated NECAM. I, I hated it with a passion because oh, it ran off SMPTE code and it just kept, it kept, it kept dropping out. Mm hmm. But it had trees it, for your have, different automation passes, right? You could go through your history of automation you, passes with, with NECAM? You'd have to do like little pieces and then you'd have to, you know, write down which Joel piece him. was what. And then you'd have to merge, merge and from label this, label that. And oh my God, wow. it was just a nightmare. I hated it. Yeah. Yep. It, it was disgusting. I'll tell you when, but when that, but if SSL, you used it, LSA, if you used SSL it. Came, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say the SSL stuff, what Bill was about to say, the SSL, um, you know, total recall and all that kind of stuff was, was so much better. But I also had a little stint with the MCI. Um, MCI, I can't remember what that was called, uh, what that automation was called, but it, it used to, you used to have to go back about 30 seconds and get them to line up and lock in. It's when we used to use two... 24-track machines in sync, which was frightening. It used to drive me nuts, um, and I'd try and avoid it at every opportunity. Well, speaking of multiple machines, I mean, I can remember being at A&M. We had a, a 3348 and then a 24-track chasing that. And then other times at the Enterprise, we'd have three 24-tracks locked up <laughs> while you're mixing. You know, just like Back then, it, was, it seemed okay. My my buddy at the record plant was was kind of working there in the early seventies, and they had eight tracks. But some of the other studios had sixteen tracks. They had a bunch of eight tracks. Apparently, they would line three of them up in a row, and they would string from the far left machine across the heads, but not across the capstan. And then inside the capstan pinch whirler of the middle machine, where the middle machine was. Uh, strung up normally, and then using the far right machine as a take-up reel, and then wow. hit, hit play, and it's all run off of one cap stand, and you have a sixteen track that you you just have to get the oh place on the tape. Right. Jesus, like you, I think I think you'd only play from the top. Wow, wow, talk about fraught with danger. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. holy crap! I can, I can remember at Sound City when, when we first started. And uh, we had a 3M one-inch eight-track, and that thing would throw tape loops. Like sometimes when you're rewinding and slowing down, and <laughs> it's like your heart just stops, you know, and, and you feel like you're getting sick, you know. Mm. Did it have that crazy head setup like the M79, like the what do yeah, they the, call the that? Loop the hysteris loop or something? Yeah. 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 Those were. Scary! Oh my God! I always thought I, I always thought the M79 was with a Fleetwood Mac recorded on. Uh, not at Sound City, I don't think. I, th- I think by then it was Studer. I just found a just do, you know googling around. I'm on I'm on Gear Sluts, and I just wanted to see what Sigma had. 
back in the day. And I actually found a post from Mike Tarja himself saying, here's what we had. And he just rambles on about all the gear. But they did have a, a Neve 8078, which he said, kind of, it was the closest thing. Rupert told me it was a prototype broadcast board, 52 in, 8 bus, modded to 2432 bus. First 8 fed, 1 through 825 or 32. Needless to say, I used to direct out a lot. And the added bus ACN sucked to me. And then a Massenburg automation system. That was the room Whoa. that I interned in. Wow. Wow. All right. I didn't realize that Rupert Neve was... Um, so instrumental in redesigning EQ. And uh, he talks about the high Q, but basically he's sort of like pimped up the old Poltex and turned them into something that could actually really change frequencies quite dramatically. And he did it because when he was at Pi and they'd have a band come in and they'd listen back to the after the record and the guitars would be buried or whatever and it was either... Get, like live with it or bring the band back in uh, and have to do another session. So that was what inspired him and, and to, to build this um, his version of the EQ because he worked out you could actually bring those guitars out just by using EQ. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. I, w- I always prefer an EVQ to, uh, to Pultex, that's for sure for me. <laughs> w- weren't Pultex made for radio stations? You know, I don't know. We, we had them at Sound City and... We'd only use them if we needed an extra EQ somewhere. You know, there wasn't a doorstop on, on the console. Yeah, there you go. No, they did have a sound. They had they had a sound. You know, and and if you wanted that sound, they were great. An interesting story about Rupert Neve that um, that at uh, Studio A at A and M some years ago, uh, when the Neve was in that room. Uh, he came down to the studio one day and they asked him to sign the console, you know, autograph it, whatever. And he did with a, like a Sharpie, a magic marker. And um, so at night, everybody's gone. The cleaning crew comes in and they think that somebody's written graffiti all over the console, right? <laughs> so they wiped it off. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. And so then he's, he comes down again a couple of weeks later and they go, you're not going to believe this. The cleaning crew wiped it off. Would you mind, please, just signing it again? And he did it. So, Oh, that's classy. That's yeah. really cool. That's why some of the most disgusting places on planet Earth are that my clients' voiceover studio booths, where they don't let any single cleaning person touch them for months and months and years uh-huh. on end. That sounds some scary. Of them are so <laughs> gross. <laughs> now, now, with COVID, though, I mean, a- A&M has this, like, this policy that everything is like really, really clean. Everybody wears masks all the time. Everybody gets, <clears throat> excuse me, gets um, tested twice a week, and um, no more coffee, no f- more, more fruit baskets. They're really wow. trying hard. That oh, sounds right. very sensible, Bill. They're keeping the doors yeah. open, and they're keeping yeah. you guys working, and they're keeping yeah. production going. Yeah, we had um, Greg Bissonette on drums and Lee Scalar on bass, and oh. man, it sounded great. Sounded really good. Oh wow! How cool! Yeah, Greg is awesome. He he reads, and I've never run across a drummer that reads like he does. I mean, he's played with everybody. I got to think that Neil Peart was probably a pretty big reader too, is my guess, based on his lyrics. But Hmm. could be. I never met him. I mean, when when I see Greg, like he'll 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 have a, a chart transcribed from him, and he'll read like. 16th, 30 seconds. I mean, he's, his reading is just impeccable. 
I mean, some of the most complicated stuff, and he just reads it, you know? Oh, I feel like a doofus because I just thought you meant he reads books and that's unusual for drummers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need that question. I wasn't going to sign it. It's coming. <laughs> good drummer joke. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Oh, you actually just meant he could read charts. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> yeah, he was reading the paper in the, in the toilet. Yeah. You know that joke, Is don't it? you? The, 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 well, the joke is the drummer goes in for the session and they say, well, you know, do you read, man? And he says, no, I don't, I don't read dots, man. It's like, well, yeah, I'll give you a lyric sheet, you know. He said, no, I told you I don't read, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, poor old drummer. Uh, what do you get if you cross a car thief with a roadie? <laughs> oh, <Jesus>. oh, <laughs> what? Hey? You get a drummer with his own transport. <laughs> that's good. Uh, that's great. How, how many drummers does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, <laughs> one? Or, I don't know, a thousand? None. You just get a machine to do it. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like the difference between a, a drum machine and a drummer. With a drum machine, you only have to punch the information in once. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, talking about car thieves and uh, drummers, <laughs> Buzz, you have a Chicago story that you told me yesterday, and I think uh, this is a good one for Robert. Oh, okay, Robert, yes. Well, when I was in one time when we were in your fair city okay. in uh, 1980, it was the Angels, or in America we were called Angel City, and we were doing the... Our first tour of America, and we were in Chicago, staying at Lakeshore Drive Holiday Inn, and we'd played somewhere just out of town, probably in Lansing, I think, somewhere just out of town, and we went back to the hotel. The crew put the truck in the hotel car park, and they all went to bed, you know, everyone sort of, you know. The next morning, they went down to get the truck to go to the gig, which was in Chicago, in Chicago City that night, and the truck wasn't there. So somebody had actually followed them in, into the car park, hot-wired the truck, taken the truck. So we we were doing an interview on on, on radio and we said, look, we have to cancel the gig tonight um, because we our truck got stolen. And uh, Rick Nielsen rang up the radio station and said, no, 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 what do you need, what do you need? I'll send it to you. So he sent us amps and, uh, amps and uh, guitars from Hamer and um, uh, a Ludwig drum kit from Bunny and um, turned up at the gig and played with us as well. So it was it was wow. awesome. It was the start of a really nice friendship with those guys uh, who really That's looked great. after us. That's story. such you know, a when cool we, story. And, yeah. and they did find the truck. They found the track, uh, truck uh, in the bottom of Lake Michigan and it had the road crew's underwear in it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why they didn't take that. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bottom of Lake Michigan, man. Yeah. The bottom of, yeah, but the interesting thing was we came back and toured later in that year and um, our bass player swears blind that he got the same studio instrument Randall's bass box back. He got the same one that was wow. taken out of the truck. So obviously whoever took the truck would have returned the stuff to, you know, people who might come after them, like studio in instrument rentals or those people, you know. Um, and then they they did find the guitars. The guitars got hocked and there was, you know, it was like a 1960s P bass and there was, a, you know, a beautiful Epiphone. 
But, um, yeah, but Chris reckons he got the same bass box back. Yeah. Very interesting. Inside job, I'd say. So were you still Inside with the band? Because there was somewhere in the States that you, the Angels were playing. I'm sure it was the Angels. The Angels were playing and um, was it Slash and Axel from Guns N' Roses jumped up on stage and did Marseille with you? Is that the Angels? After, after me, I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, it was. Yeah, they they actually they actually name checked us as a band they used to like in the late seventies. Yeah, no, I'd left. I left in eighty one, but uh, I did. I was in the band when we got chucked off the Kinks tour, so I've got that to put in my hat. I think that's a good one. <laughs> yes, because I remember I've, I've heard that story too. Because the crowds loved you more than the Kinks, and so they tossed you off the tour, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was. Yeah, well, we started on the wrong side of the country. We started on the on the northwest, you know, Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver, where we'd already played three times, and we actually had a following there. Um, so once we started playing, you know, out of the eight thousand people at the gig, there's probably four thousand people that knew our stuff, and and Doc was sort of running around doing his his front man thing, um, running into the audience and all that kind of stuff. And you know, whizzing up the crowd, and and we thought that was what we should do because we were the support band. We wanted to get everyone going, but Dave, <laughs> Dave and uh, Ray Davies didn't like it at all. They got really fucking pissed off. And um, by the time we came down the coast, Portland, we did Seattle, Portland. We got down to San Francisco. By the time we got down to San Diego, they were just they'd had enough, and uh, they told Doc he's not allowed out in the audience. You know, so he would run out into the audience. Of course, he would. You know. They told him he was not allowed to. They said, you know, you're not allowed to have these lights now. The next night we weren't allowed to have the foldback. The next night we didn't get a sound check. You know, it was all that kind of stuff. And by the time we got down there, they wow. just kicked us off. Didn't even they? They t- even turned your PA down one night, didn't they? From that, oh, they did all of that. Yeah, they did yeah. everything. They did everything that a main act could do to piss off. You know, to to make the support act. Jeez. You know, but had we started on the east coast had we started there where no one knew who the hell we were it would have been totally different yeah yeah Yeah. it would have been would have been totally different because you know we wouldn't have got the kind of reaction that we got because we'd actually been to those markets and in fact at i think we had a top 10 no secrets was top 10 in in seattle so you know it was kind of we were kind of doing quite well there Mm. yeah there you go yeah just started the wrong side of the country I was just going to say, just before you move on, just no secrets. This is completely personal, but AP and I were having this conversation yesterday. Was this? Does the story go with the lyrics for that, that Doc was driving a taxi and Amanda actually was a real person that he met? Yeah, he wasn't driving a cab. He was a, she was a hitchhiker, ah, okay. and um, right. and Doc gave her, a, you know, gave her a ride, and she just started pouring out the story. And her name was Amanda, and she was an actress, and and um, and normally. You know, in the rock and roll world, he probably would have dropped her off at her house and and probably gone in for something else. Yeah. But he just dropped her off at a house, went round the corner, and got out his notebook and wrote down everything he could remember. Wow! And that was wow. that was the lyric I for the love song. That story. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. Amanda, the actress, waits at the station. She's drifting with nothing to do. With Peloton steps, she's quite to accept the weather and times turning screw. Shoes. 
I was going to say, uh, also, talking about uh, getting uh, pushed off a, off a tour, I remember seeing the Hoodoo Gurus um, supporting um, Lou Reed. And uh, mm. they did their, their set. The crowd were going bananas, so they came back on, did an encore. And, uh, and then it kept going and going and going. The house lights went on. <laughs> the guys were pulling down, trying to turn the PA down, trying to get them off stage. It was, they, they just kept going. It was amazing. <laughs> And of course, the time Lou Reed came out, it was like, this guy's fucking boring. I'm yeah. going. What was the NXS? It was NXS and Adam Ant. It was the same thing, wasn't it? They they played support for Adam Ant on their first US tour. And he basically got rid of them off the tour for the same sort of reasons and tried all the same sort of tricks. Yeah. It's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Strange old world. Isn't it just? So, Bill, tell me, um, now you've, yeah. you've been in the industry for at least 15 years, um, being 35. <laughs> so how much has it changed? Oh, my God. It's, uh, you know, of course, the te- technology has changed so much. Um, you know, it's gone from, you know, four track or eight track, you know, to, you know, as many tracks as you want in Pro Tools. It's gone from really small consoles to really huge consoles, you know, back sort of back to like no consoles, you know, and you just have a few mic breeze and the, the business end of it has changed so much. Um, you know, the uh, record company rosters have gotten smaller, budgets have gotten smaller and uh, trying to make money and sell records uh, in the numbers that we used to in the eighties and nineties. Uh, it's, it's just, Forget about it unless you're like one of the, you know, top five artists or whatever. Do you think uh, one of the biggest changes is the lack of commitment when recording? People don't have to practice as much as they used to and really learn their craft as much as they used to. So instead of getting like singers that are great singers and sing on pitch, you, you do a lot of vocal fixes, you know, like whether it's, you know, tuning or time compression, time expansion, moving parts, this and that, you know. And so it's it's a lot more work trying to build up a really great lead vocal now compared to what it used to be. You know, he's, the singer, that was his responsibility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you feel like, it, like the technology in that sense has compromised the music in a way compared to, you know, people practicing and performing and, making decisions and saying, oh, if I'm going to try that again, I'm going to lose that previous take, um, you know, or at the most only bouncing between two tracks. That's to- what people used to think. Yeah, I, I still think there's there's a lot of great new music that's being made. And whether or not they've, you know, spent hours tuning a vocal or piecing together little parts of words like we sometimes do, um, there's still some great stuff out there. And... Um, you know, I'm sure that some of them, you know, they're, these records are made in bedrooms and garages. The most important elements to me is the singer and the song. And um, the technology is, you know, comes next or whatever, but you got to have a great song and a great vocalist. I know it's changed. How about Al Schmidt has his own plug-in now? <laughs> That's changed. 
Oh, really? <laughs> Did you hear about that? Yeah. No. <laughs> Al Schmidt has a plugin. I saw him interviewed about it, and he's like, oh, I'd never use it. I don't use those things. I don't use plugins. But I got one now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I, I'd say um, from from my end, the 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 biggest difference is that people now know that there are people that make records in their bedrooms and they do it in the box in a computer. So when I find some young people, and I do a lot of work with younger people sort of in their late 20s, and some of them who don't understand what recording is all about and what the history of how people made records and and whatever they sort of think they've got that in their head when they come in oh you can fix it all right you, you know we'll just do five tracks and then you you comp it you know and i always go no 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 i don't want to do that i want you to be able to play the part so i want you to actually get sit out there in my little room there and learn the part and when you've when you can do it and you can make maybe three mistakes and I drop in three times that's that's kind of cool but the the idea of just doing five or six tracks I mean you do it you do it with vocals definitely you just you get somebody comfortable and you go sing it five times and then you comp it you know but actually making the music is something that people have forgotten about the art of that and bill hit it on the head when he said maybe people don't practice enough a lot of them just think that that can all be fixed with auto tune and all. i personally hate auto tune and i i try not to use it everything on our asquith sessions that i've released in the last 2 years has not got one bit of auto tune on it i i get singers who can sing mm. it was a really interesting quote the other day i heard it was like why are there no guitar solos in records anymore? And the, the answer was because no one can play the guitar anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they don't think like that. They don't think in that term. People are quite happy to hear the same four chords, C, A minor, F, G, 7, going round and round and round and round. And that's it. You'll hear it, in, you know, in a million songs, same chords, you know, yep. same four chords. Same same thing. There's no bridges. There's no. What's the? Where's the chorus? I don't know. It's somewhere there. It's mm-hmm. the same chords as the verse, though. It's the same four chords of the slightly different melody. Yeah. And as someone who goes looking for guitar solos and and intros and stuff like that to use under voiceover, because I was always wrapped under the knuckles when I was learning to do radio imaging. That you know you never put a voiceover over a vocal. So, you know I'm. Like the only the only way for, to do that these days is to go and hopefully get, get your hands on an instrumental or use something like um, uh, Isotope's music rebalance and see if you can you know sort of get rid of the voice or whatever because there's there's nothing it's just straight into a vocal couple of hooks and out the back. Well, what you do in the future, man, is you call Buzz and I've got a million bits of music. Yes, okay, there you go. <laughs> I'll have you on speed dial. <laughs> yeah. There you go. What do you guys think of the publicity that uh, Billie Eilish has gotten and the way she works with her brother? I mean, I've never seen a pop artist ex- sort of expose their living and working style so publicly. Just, uh, you know, what do, you, do you find that is a positive impression on music production? I do. I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like some of her stuff a lot, and some of it I, I can't get into, but yeah. but um, I can appreciate that they're both very driven, and um, I think he does a great job with her. I love the story that she, yeah. you know, they sort of, they really look for music in everyday things. Like, I don't know whether you two guys have heard the story about, I think it's um, 
I think it's bury a friend or it might be um, bad, guy. bad guy. Yeah, she it's she sampled guy. the uh, in Australia we have these the, uh, our pedestrian crossing signals make a noise for for visually impaired people, and it goes when it's the walk signals on so that they know they can walk. And she sampled that. And, um, and they've used that in, in, um, in bad guy. So, you know, I, I think that mm. sort of stuff, finding something musical yeah. in everyday things, I, I think that's really clever. It's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my son, my son started doing that. He's a, he's a, a kind of new, nouveau funk producer. He lived in L.A. for a couple of years um, and, and uh, he, he's always putting atmospheres into his tracks. There's always something going on. And um, I've started to do it as well. It's fantastic. Mm. It's just great just putting these things. He had a, yeah, all sorts of things, trains, uh, you know, train sounds or, or you know, uh, atmosphere of a street or something like that. It's amazing what they do. Yeah. Is it just buried in the mix, sort of, so to speak? Is it just kind of like- Yeah, they're kind of buried in the mix it, and you can't it's really very trippy. Kind of yeah. He, he's the kind of guy, you know, who, who does- um, um, he did a track with this guy called Ty Dollar Sign, and it was very quite a successful oh. track. Um, yeah, and, well um, yeah, it's pretty well known. Yeah, and Levin Carly was the other one he did, where he had a lot of these sounds in it. Um, but yeah, they they just kind of buried a bit, and he just sort of puts them. It's kind of weird. He puts them in the back of guitars and stuff as well. It's just it's just all about just fucking up the sound somehow. But it's all done in post, right? He's not using like a synthesis to or guitar. The guitar line isn't triggering sounds or something. It's it's Uh, just a layer. He's layering them in the back. He's layering them in, and yeah, and and now he's he's actually just getting into a a bit of triggering stuff, which is kind of interesting too. Where he's triggering stuff, sounds off of things as well. Um, Yeah, you can find him actually. He's he's just he's Maxwell M double X W double L capitals. M double X W double L. You can see what he does. So, just quickly, one last question. Given that we we sort of got this gathering of of minds together today in tribute to Rupert Neve, uh, gentlemen guests, uh, given the opportunity to spend some time with Rupert and pass on some thanks, and and in particular, you know, get inside his head. What would be the what would be the one thing? That you'd say to Rupert, given the time you've spent on his consoles. Yeah, I got a chance to talk with him. Um, he came out to Australia doing a, a trip. It was probably twenty years ago or so, and I ended up. I was part of the people running this thing, and I just ended up sitting in a room with him for about half an hour. And I, and I just sort of, I said, "Hey, man, I got I got to say, I, you know, I got a TG one two three four five Mark three And he just looked at me, and said, "You're kidding me! How did you get that?" And I get, told him the story, obviously, and. Um, and then he told me the story about um, how they put all that together. I've also got another very good friend who's Richard Lush, who worked at yeah, Abbey yeah, Road. Yeah, Richard. Yeah, uh, who's unfortunately got MS right now. Oh, no. Um, but, oh, shit. But, you know, the story that what, what I'd say to Rupert, if I could see him right now again, and it'd be a big thank you, obviously. Um, and um, I'm looking at my prism rack right now and uh, just going, you know, Thank you so much. How lucky am I? <laughs> for, totally. How lucky am I to have actually worked on a lot of your equipment? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I would second that. Just just a big thank you to the guy for designing the circuits that he did. And I think that um, those Neve consoles, the first ones in uh, Sound City, were the ones that I, I really got to uh, get familiar with Neve. And those EQs and compressors were uh, a 
big, big game changer for rock and roll music for me. Mm. They were so musical sounding. Yeah. Mm. And and he's because listening to you two guys talk, he's one thing that's just occurred to me. Every analog console I've always worked, I've ever worked on, has always had one thing, at least one thing, where you go, "Why the hell did they do it that way?" Is there is there anything with the knee <laughs> stuff that you 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 would ask him that question? Why did you do that that way? You know, for me, uh, no, because wow. I think everything was done right. Yeah, there you go, yeah. testament, right? Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty good. I. I it's more what did they do right, all the great stuff, like how, how you could re-EQ things on the, from the monitor section was really great, you know, different to a lot of other desks. When you actually, what, you realise how good they are when you have to use a different desk. Different <laughs> That's right. Board. I don't know what you got till it's gone. At, at Capitol Studios, they had, had an old Neve in there that was great sounding, but they also had um, Neve mastering consoles, and those were really cool. It had a big rotary knob and you could do one setup you know for whatever song you're on and then the rotary knob over to the other one and oh man those mastering consoles sounded so good and were they were they any of those the tg ones i don't know to tell you the truth i don't know well they kind of look like tg stuff you you know like the tg mastering stuff that you see on um uh, the waves plugin have you seen that yeah vaguely yeah yeah, well, that's that's kind of what the transfer desk used to look like. That's the way we get to and that all, plug- all us young guys and people that didn't get those years in those studios were getting to live that now through plugins. Um, you know, a- I have absolutely. an Apollo Twin on my desk, you know, and I get to pretend I have that history and that legacy and just plug in a plugin, even if it's in a demo mode, and I can twist those knobs and I can get the sound. And I know it's not the same soul, you know, but it's so cool that we get to at least kind of experience a little bit what you guys did, what 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 that EQ knob does, and why is it upside down? Oh, it's because it was easier to see, <laughs> you know, the markings and just all. It's just really fun yeah. getting to experience that now in this virtual world. I still have a bunch of Neve modules at home. And- Do you use them? Oh yeah, I, I use them all the time. I have. Um, yeah, 1089s and 1034s, uh, Neve 33609 compressor. And I'm getting my AMS back that I just had repaired for $2,000. <laughs> oh, which, which AMS? So that'll the, be the, fun. the reverb you're talking about or, or what? Yeah, the RMX 16. The RMX. You you mentioned a prism. Is 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 that like the EQ module from one of the... the uh, the boards is that the Prism EQ? No, you're it's a it's to? a rack. Okay, so it's more like, like Prism, a, a the, rack the, unit. the company that makes interfaces and stuff. Is that or yeah? If you if you dial up Prism Rack, is what it is. Oh, and it, but it has a bunch of modules for EQs, doesn't it? Yes, it's got it's got uh, almost it, like five hundred series, but it's a it's its own yeah, system. Yeah, and you know, yeah, it's got it's got a mic pre and a and an EQ that's associated with it. So I got four of them and. Six, six other EQs. Oh, that's their lunchbox. Well, Bill and I seem to be the only ones who um, have Neve in our little studios. I think I have a Neve. <laughs> oh, you got a Neve? I, as well, I, I have, have a. Got? I have a non-Neve Neve. I have a. Um, God, what is it? It's a little tiny eight-channel board, but it, it wasn't one of the forty-one. It, it, it's like a, a five series or fifty series one. I'll find the exact name of it. One moment. 
or not. I, I do have another so um, kind of rare piece. I have a, a Neve 10 by 2 mixer uh, made by Brent Averill, which there's not too many oh, of those wow. around. But um, yeah, yeah no. that's, that's wow. a cool piece too. I feel like I'm slumming it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <laughs> my, <laughs> my little 1073 and 2254 sounds like lo-fi in comparison. Well, Anyway. Well, yours, yours is your your ten seventy three is much better. Yeah. Have you used the twenty two fifty four, Bill? Yes, I have quite a bit. Do you like the twenty two fifty four? The only thing I don't like about it is the release time. It's it it's not selectable. I I, I don't recall, and and it was a little slow. I liked the more um, the compressors that came out right after that. And the 33609 was modeled after those. And so you, you can get a faster release. So, so my Neve is a Neve 54 series. It's like a little eight channel kind of 80s Neve, little sidecar. It was, like, nice. it was mainly for radio, remote, oh, cool. out, uh, like outside broadcast. But it's got eight uh-huh. great little you know preamps that go up to 70 or I think 90 decibels. It's crazy like how... How loud the preamps go, and we'll push. We're talking about cool. being loud. Um, I know that Bill, you're on a an SSL two plus, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm using the interface on SSL two as well, and they go to eleven. <laughs> I know, I love that. <laughs> I, I actually did a, a song with Spinal Tap. Actually, oh, did you? Ah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That, yeah. Was when was that? Back from That's the cool. dead. Back probably. From the dead. 2000, 2002, somewhere did, back then. Did they run all their amps at 11? I hope. Probably. <laughs> but it was it was a rough dam. And we had to track, track the whole thing, do all the overdubs, and mix it all in one day. Yeesh. And, oh, oh geez. Oh. I'm going to have to Lovely. drop. But, um, really nice to meet you guys. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Great yeah, nice stories. Thank you, chaps. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Buzz. Thanks, Thanks gents. Safe. My pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. This show was mixed by Voodoo Radio Imaging. Edit by Andrew Peters. Using Rode microphones and Source Connect Now. Tech support from George the Tech Whittem. And supported by Harlan Hogan's VoiceOverEssentials.com. The home of the Portabooth Pro. You let my trouble.